Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read a page of The Wise Man's Fear and then we talk about it. This is page 357. But since I'd moved into this small garret room, I'd begun gathering oddments and half-finished projects. I now had the luxury of two blankets. There were pages of notes, a circular piece of half-inscribed tin from the fishery, a broken gear clock I'd taken to pieces to see if I could put it back together again. I finished loading my travel sack, then packed everything else into the trunk that sat at the foot of my bed. A few worn tools, a broken piece of slate I used for ciphering, a small wooden box with the handful of small treasures Auri had given me. Then I went downstairs and asked Anchor if he would mind stowing my possessions in the basement until I returned. He admitted a little guiltily that before I started sleeping there, the tiny slant-ceilinged room had been empty for years and only used for storage. He was willing to leave it unrented if I promised to continue our current room for music arrangement after I returned. I gladly agreed, and swinging my loot case onto my shoulder, I headed out the door. I wasn't entirely surprised to find Elodin on Stonebridge. Very little about the Master Namer surprised me these days. He sat on the waist-high stone lip of the bridge, swinging his bare feet over the hundred-foot drop to the river below. Hello, Quoth, he said without turning his eyes from the churning water. Hello, Master Elodin, I said. I'm afraid I'm going to be leaving the university for a term or two. Are you really afraid? I noticed a whisper of amusement in his quiet, resonant voice. It took me a moment to realize what he was referring to. It's just a figure of speech. The figures of our speaking are like pictures of names. Vague, weak names, but names nonetheless. Be mindful of them. He looked up at me. Sit with me for a moment. I started to excuse myself and hesitated. He was my sponsor, after all. I set down my loot and travel sack on the flat stone of the bridge. A fond smile came over Elodin's boyish face as he slapped the stone parapet next to himself with the flat of his hand, offering me a seat. I looked over the edge with a hint of anxiety. I'd rather not, Master Elodin. He gave me a reproachful look. Caution suits an arcanist. Assurance suits a namer. Fear does not suit either. It does not suit you. He slapped the stone again, more firmly this time. That's the page. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. It's awfully nice of Anchor to do this, and I sort of think that it's an excuse for Rothfuss not to have to deal with it. It's much easier as an author to be like, yeah, they're just going to leave it there than have, you know, to have to explain, well, Anchor took my stuff to the basement. He's going to store it there. I think it's great. I think it's fine. It's very kind of Anchor. I'm mostly interested in this passage because it has a brief mention of the fact that Auri has, sorry, that Quoth has kept all the little gifts he has from Auri and that they're all in a box in his room because they almost never get mentioned. So it's nice to be reminded that he's got them all still. Yes, and I agree that I think that this is an example of Roth as being like, I don't want to have to think about the logistics of what happens to all of Quoth's stuff, so I'm just going to put it all in narrative stasis. His room is going to be there when he gets back, so we don't have to think about it. That said, it would have taken probably the same amount of space on the page for him to say, oh yes, Anchor humbly agreed to keep my things in the basement. Like, he's already talked, he already spent part of the page being like, oh yeah, I was just going to ask Anchor to put my stuff in the basement. He could have just been like, and Anchor agreed, and that could be the end of it. But no, he added in the story about how the room was empty. That's true, which I guess is to the character of Anchor's credit. Yes. Maybe it's just to make Anchor look good. Yeah. Not just to make him look good, but like to show his the growth of his relationship with Quoth. When they started out, Anchor was just like, it was a business arrangement that Anchor took on because he like didn't like Ambrose or at least wasn't afraid of Ambrose and he thought Quoth would be good for business. But now 
he like likes Quoth enough to say, I can afford to not be making this money from you in order to like make your life a little easier. Yeah. Or that Quoth Knight has become so popular that An- Anchor wants the right of first refusal. Mm. Yeah, he's trying to give something for Quoth to come back to. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, I mean, it would not be that hard for Anchor, assuming Anchor understands that Quoth has already put all that stuff in the trunk. Anchor could theoretically take the trunk, bring it down to the basement, rent out the room for a couple of nights, and then take the trunk, bring it back up. Like, if he really wanted to do it, he could still rent out that room and make money, theoretically. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, which I think is showing that his relationship with Quoth is more valuable than the real estate he's losing rental money for. Although the implication to me also is that no one was renting that room because no one would want to live there, right? Yeah, I also sort of got that. No one would be willing to pay Mm. money to live there. Perhaps the Mm. same way that Anchor sees something in Quoth that the other innkeepers don't see. Maybe Quoth is seeing something in Anchor that the other that he doesn't see in the other innkeepers. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm pulling strings. It seems like Quoth has so much on his plate. How does he have time to like have, make another project of taking apart a clock? But then I remembered that they don't have TV, uh, and so in his downtime, in the small hours, just to noodle around, it makes sense that he might basically play with this as a toy. So. I'm not bothered, but it, it is easy, easy to forget how much time we give up to devices. Yeah, although also think about, like, for a lot of people, TV is background noise. Like, I know a lot of people who, you know, knit while they watch TV or they, you know, they do something else with their hands while they're watching TV. And I wonder if the exercise of, like, taking apart and putting back together uh, a piece of clockwork is is that kind of thing that Quoth can do while he's like mulling something over or thinking about something just to keep his hands busy? Hands. Hmm. <laughs> he has two blankets. That's a luxury. I have two blankets on my bed and many more in my house. And so it's surprising to be reminded that, oh yeah, this is not, for Quoth, this is a unheard of luxury to have two whole blankets. I too have a collection of blankets, none of which I'm willing to part with, but all of which I don't have room to store because we have like a teeny little box and blankets are big and puffy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a real dilemma you got there. Too many blankets. Yeah, you're sort of a, a modern day Quoth. <laughs> uh, except for that I have more than two blankets. Lording it over yep. Quoth with your three. And say, I've got so many blankets, Quoth couldn't even handle how many blankets I have. <laughs> After the Tilda brand, Quoth encounters Eladin. Do we think that Eladin saw the letter that Quoth left for him, or do we think that Eladin just knew he was going to be by this way? I sort of hope he just knew. It feels like a very Eladin-y thing. Yeah, I think it's more likely that he just knew. Or that he heard it from another master, which is actually what I feel is the most likely. Or that they just happened to cross paths, you know? It might not be that Eladin planned this. It could just be that he happened to be sitting on Stonebridge, and he happened to cross paths with Quoth. It's possible that the conversation we read tomorrow may shed more light on that potential. Ah, well then. It's possible. He he also takes on the role of the simultaneously wise and enigmatic uh, teacher and the pedantic philosophy dipshit. <laughs> when he says things like, you know, Quote says, I'm afraid I'm going to be leaving the university. And he goes, are you really afraid? This is like the same kind of question that your, your annoying pedantic English teacher says like, well, you can use the bathroom, but what are you really asking? Well, doesn't Auri say this at, w- at one point? Yeah. Doesn't Quoth say this to Auri? I'm afraid something, something. And she says, don't be afraid. You know, I think she might. Yeah, I recall that. Or something of the sort. 
Well, and then Eladin gives us a clue to why he's being a pedant when he says the figures of our speaking are like pictures of names. You know, like when you say something like that, it means something. It's not just a figure of speech. So think about what you're saying before you say it. But also, is it possible that maybe a bit of Quoth is afraid? Like think about what he's about to do. Like that's kind of a scary thing. Well, yeah, but I, but I don't know if Quoth could admit that to himself, right? Hmm. Does fear have a name the same way that the wind has a name? This is a question that we have asked before on this podcast. Like, how abstract can you get when you know the names of things? What what qualifies as a thing that can have a name? And if you call the name of fear, does it affect you or does it affect someone else? Mm. <laughs> yeah, so far all the names are quite elemental, but we could have conceptual names. Then I call the name of the page, and so shall it end. Page? Oh. The wind. wind.